TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Daniel Ellsberg, How Many Will Die in a Nuclear War Launched by the US. From Ellsberg's 2017 book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Daniel Ellsberg is best known for having made public the Pentagon Papers in 1971. They showed the world that the U.S. government had lied about planning war on Vietnam and using a lie to start it. At the same time, Ellsberg had copied and taken 7,000 pages from the nuclear command and control system in the U.S., that also contained the targeting for a first-strike launch against the Soviet Union and China. Ellsberg always said that this was information even more vital for the world to have than the Pentagon Papers. And in part one of this program, he described how these records were lost in their hiding place after a landslide. Daniel Ellsberg managed to reconstruct the files from his own notes and from material that now has become declassified. That led to his 2017 book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. On December 13, 2017, Daniel Ellsberg was on stage at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. He had an engaging conversation with the club's president, Dr. Gloria Duffy. She takes Ellsberg back to 1961, when Ellsberg gets the important data on the number of deaths of civilians in a nuclear war to pass on to President Kennedy. Tell us about 1961, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Bob Comer, showed you a graph about the expected casualties from a nuclear war. Right. Okay, what what I'm about to say is, I'm sorry to say, is is no joke. Um, I was under the impression that uh, by friends of mine in the military, uh, in the Air Force, who believed that with the extreme planning that was done, the very detailed calculations that were done, uh, there had never been they had never seen a calculation of how many people would die altogether, how many missile sites, how many bases. We calculated, you know, how many bombs would be needed, everything, but how many people would be killed. So I drafted a question that was sent to the Joint Chiefs by my friend Bob Comer, who was the assistant to McGeorge Bundy, he was the deputy to McGeorge Bundy, as assistant to the president for national security, in the name of the president, Kennedy. And the question was, which I had the impression they didn't have an answer to and would be embarrassed by not knowing the answer. The question was, if your plans were carried out as planned, an initiation of strategic strikes against the homeland of the Soviet Union, in the case, say, of a crisis arising in Europe, Berlin, Berlin crisis, 1961, or in 58, if the Soviets went into Iran. Uh, actually, uh, Eisenhower believed, plausibly, that any fighting with Soviet troops would escalate and escalate to nuclear war. Better that we do it first, you know, and do what we could to wipe out their forces. So there was no plan for limited war with the Soviet Union. And there was another peculiarity of the plans under Eisenhower. 
In the case of any conflict with the Soviet Union anywhere, whether it was Iran, Berlin, an uprising in East Europe, which is always a possibility, we would hit not only every city in Russia in the USSR, but every city in China. Now, there was a Sino-Soviet bloc, supposedly, in, or there was in the 50s, but it had been, as you know, eroding uh, very much in the late 50s, and by 61, 60, it was really quite a split. Uh, but only some people in the government were prepared to recognize that at that point. And the plans called for hitting the entire Sino-Soviet bloc under any circumstances of armed conflict with Russians anywhere. Okay. So the question then was, if your plans against the Sino-Soviet bloc are carried out under any circumstances, how many will be killed? And the answer came in two parts, in a way. First was a chart, a very simple chart, which I reproduce in the book, very simple to remember, un unforgettable, I'm sorry to say, uh, of vertical axis, uh, millions of deaths. And on the horizontal axis, uh, months with fallout, uh, you know, as months proceeded and the fallout is spread. How many will die? And the lowest number, which was given to the president right away, top secret, eyes only for the president, and I was seeing it because I'd written the question, so Comer showed it to me. The lowest number was 275 million people. Going up to 325 million, my question had been, I should say, in the USSR and China alone. So to jump ahead here, they did have a model. My reaction was, this is the most evil plan that has ever existed. It's insane. How could this be the case? And it was not a hypothetical construct of some sort, a, a, a model for thinking about that we used to do at RAND. This was the operational plan for the United States forces in the year of a Berlin crisis. So they, they did know the answer, it turned out. So I said, okay, how many all together then? Not just USSR and China. And within a week, we got a table with the rest of it. Another 100 million in East Europe, the satellite countries, the prisoner countries, we called them. 100 million of them would be killed. Another 100 million in West Europe, our allies, subject to Khrushchev by medium-range missiles, short-range missiles that we could not find or locate. There was no chance, hundreds of them. Um, just as North Korea holds South Korea total hostage, we can't eliminate that by any attack, and Japan as well, okay? Okay, our allies would be annihilated then by fallout from our own attack not counting the Russian attack, which was certain to kill them, but the fallout from our attacks without a single warhead landing over there would kill them depending on which, quote, which way the wind blew. It depended on season and the weather. A third hundred million, roughly, in areas contiguous to the Soviet Union and China. Um, Afghanistan, a place I hardly knew, I couldn't have located on a map then, but Austria, Finland. We would wipe out Finland without a single warhead landing on Finland by fallout from our attacks on the submarine pens at Leningrad. Japan, northern Japan, northern India, so forth, another 100 million, uh, all those. A total of 600 million. Hard to imagine, hard to visualize, but 100 holocausts.
And even if this was retaliation, which it wasn't, it was a first strike, astoundingly. But even as retaliation, you're talking not about retaliatory genocide, you're talking about retaliatory multi-genocide. And although at that time, the uh, Russians were believed to have hundreds of missiles, more than we could find, oddly, the Joint Chiefs that summer told Kennedy that if we had to go first over Berlin, they thought they could tell him that at most there would be 10 million deaths in the United States only. And that's, I discussed that in the book, that seemed a very odd estimate, you know, because how could it be that low? And the human species has never seen violence that big, that fast, ever. Uh, it would be more violence in a day or a week than, than in human history. It's mad, it's crazy that the world is standing by passively and allowing this to be risked and gambled and asked, will he or won't he? We're all watching to see, you know, what will happen uh, when a disaster is being prepared. And that's what I was looking at in 61 that you talk about, but on a scale of a thousand times greater, a thousand times greater. We're talking of billions of people, not millions. And that has been true ever since when it comes to war with Russia or the Ukraine. And one thing I think that people are rightly worried about in the case of North Korea, but they haven't defined it just like this, as you know from my book, I've said Trump is not the first to be making nuclear threats. In fact, he's not even the first to make nuclear threats against Korea. Uh, the first was when I was 19, in 1950, I was waiting to go to Korea at that point. Harry Truman made those threats in 1950. But North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons then. They've made dozens of threats of nuclear weapons, but not against the nuclear weapon state for 55 years. That was the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, where the, the scale was much greater. But we haven't had a threat like this against the nuclear weapons state ever since. It's crazy for either side to think of armed conflict with the other. So the elements of our nuclear policy and strategy are relatively similar to what they were 50 years ago. Where should we go from here? What's the hope now? I've never felt that there was no merit whatever, on the contrary, to the notion of deterrence in the sense of having a capability to retaliate to a nuclear attack with nuclear weapons. Um, the, uh, granted, we, we started out in the late 40s as a monopolist of nuclear weapons. We weren't deterring nuclear attack. Uh, we were the only ones who could commit a nuclear attack. And then when the Russians acquired that capability, we continued to defend Europe, supposedly, by a willingness to attack first, which meant a willingness to not blow the world up because we didn't know about nuclear winter then that threatens the entire world, but a third of the population of the world, a billion people being killed by the Joint Chiefs estimate at a time when the world population was three billion. That was in 1961. So they didn't know about the nuclear winter, but they knew that they were threatening one third and they were willing to risk that and even prepared to carry it out. Uh, that was never justified. 
it was never necessary. It has never been in, in any remote way uh, justified. And it's true you can't uninvent nuclear weapons, but you can dismantle doomsday machines that we now know would kill everybody or kill a third. By the way, India and Pakistan alone can cause starvation uh, by their attacks with their much, much smaller forces of a third of the world's population. Now, they have no right to risk that over Kashmir. Ours is a hundred times greater and not justified. So, as defense, former Defense Secretary Perry has laid out an agenda that, as you know from my last chapter, uh, I've agreed with for years. In fact, uh, could go back 20 years and have said this. Eliminating the ICBMs, the land-based vulnerable missiles, which really are for nothing other than first strike or preemptive strike, because they can't survive an every first strike. They're only good if you get them off the ground, use them or lose them. Those should not exist on either side. But we would be safer if we just got rid of ours right away, eliminate the so-called land-based leg. I definitely favor that. No first use? Yes. It should not be on the table in our bargaining. That doesn't mean that that threat can't work. But in order to make it credible, we build weapons that can end life on Earth, essentially. We don't need that, we shouldn't have that, and so forth. So it isn't enough just to declare no first use, which would be an enormous change in our policy, but by itself would not necessarily affect much. But we should get rid of the weapons for first use. We should demonstrate we have no intention of doing this. Get rid of the weapons in Europe as Germany has wanted to do for over 20 years, or I don't say they do at this moment because of the various crises coming up, but really uh, Germany uh, back in the 90s was uh, calling for no first use and Madeleine Albright said, uh, no way, the US doesn't go along with that. We should cut down the number, in my opinion, this would be controversial, of the sub-launched missiles and submarines. We don't need 14, we don't need 10. Trident submarines uh, out there. They are invulnerable, but we have hundreds of missiles that threaten their land-based missiles and encourage them to launch on warning on a full thing. That makes the world vulnerable. So I would, in other words, cut down, I would say, no country has the right to have the capability to commit omnicide. Cut that down. It would take a new set of standards, mm -hmm. a new norm in a way that you should not have the ability to destroy life. It, it seems a modest goal in some sense, <laughs> uh, and yet an enormous change in our, in our activity. The issue of nuclear weapons and the, and the nuclear standoff has slipped below the waterline of public awareness and public debate. Do you, do you agree? And oh, absolutely. What, what you know, would raise the profile of the issue? Something I'd like to bring out very much in this book, which hasn't been done since the early 80s, which at my age is not so long ago, but by other standards, you know, is before people were born who were, who were working. Uh, there are people who are, <laughs> hard to remember but for me, but there are people under 30. And, um, <laughs> In 1983, 
the discovery was made of nuclear winter. And that went out of sight after getting a lot of attention almost 35 years ago, uh, in part because the Cold War ended and people thought, well, that issue has disappeared. That was plausible, but it didn't happen. I would guess that even in this very informed audience, that is, many people are not under 30 here, as, as far as I can see here, and um, I bet that even in this audience, there are a lot of people who don't know really what nuclear winter still is or what the concept is. And let me say briefly, it was not till 1983 that people asked the question, scientists asked the question, if nuclear weapons were used on cities, as our plans have always allowed for in terms of hundreds of cities, and not since Nixon uh, ratified, as I recall, the Genocide Convention, they put a rule out, we don't target cities per se. Looks like genocide. Uh, we use the same targets, essentially, but they're military targets in the cities and on the outskirts of cities. Uh, air defenses, command and control, transport, all of this. So the same cities get burned as before, hundreds of them. What is the effect on the smoke from those burning cities? Well, a nuclear weapon, even a small one, like the Hiroshima, and that's the kind that we used, or Nagasaki, as the trigger for H-bombs, for thermonuclear weapons, the detonator of these weapons. It's all that India and Pakistan have now, or it's all that North Korea has now. But using just those weapons on cities, as in Hiroshima, creates a special kind of fire called a firestorm. And we tried to create that a great deal in our incendiary attacks in World War II, but only succeeded three times. Hamburg, Dresden, and Tokyo. And the effect of this is that with a very widespread fire created simultaneously, it's not easy to create with, without using nuclear weapons, an updraft occurs, uh, a very uh, strong updraft, which creates something of a vacuum in that area and brings in winds from the surrounding areas, cold winds, that feed the fire to a great intensity to the temperatures like 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit or 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit, at which Asphalt burns, this is without using nuclear weapons now, in Tokyo. Asphalt burns, all the people in the shelters are asphyxiated from lack of oxygen. Canals to which people fled in Tokyo on the night of March 9th and 10th, 1945. Families fled to the canals, but the canals were boiling, and they boiled to death by tens of thousands. 80 to 120,000 people were killed in one night in Tokyo, the greatest act of civilian killing in the history of humanity. And that was under General Curtis LeMay, head of, then head of, uh, later head of the Strategic Air Command. And he found that Hiroshima was a way of doing that every time, on every city. Uh, and uh, uh, he was succeeded as head of SAC by Thomas Power, who, by the way, I, I interviewed for the Kennedy Oral History the day Power retired. Retired, I actually interviewed Power in a top secret interview. But he had led the attack on Tokyo. And the norm that they followed secretly was, this is how you fight a war and this is how you win a war. You kill civilians as many as possible and the other guy quits. That's what they learned, rightly or wrongly. So with nuclear weapons in their hands, uh, 
That's the planning they did. Okay, what was discovered in 83 was that if you made hundreds or a thousand Hiroshima's, which we were planning to do, and could do as early as 1950 or 52, we were planning it, a thousand. That was under Truman. If, and this was with fission weapons, atom, atomic A-bombs. The fires from that would loft 100 million tons of smoke and black soot into the stratosphere. In ordinary fires, the smoke stays in the troposphere and rains out eventually. In the stratosphere, it doesn't get rained out. And it goes around the Earth. It's further warmed by the sun goes even further, and it stays there for more than a decade, we found. Eliminating 70% absorbing of the sunlight, enough to lower temperatures in the summer or spring, freeze rivers, but above all, kill harvests. Kill harvests, totally, uh, all around the world. Southern Hemisphere as well, without a single warhead landing down there. So whereas in 61, the Joint Chiefs were already saying our attacks will annihilate Eurasia, but the Southern Hemisphere will, will have left, you know, we have half the globe. Um, that would not be the case. They were wrong. Uh, it would be everybody because everyone would starve. We would last longer than most because we have the food reserves here, but the total food reserves in the world are about 60 days, largely here and in a few other places. We would starve within a year, the others sooner. So we're talking now about, I said earlier, omnicide. Not total extinction. Carl Sagan in 1983 got widely criticized later for having said this might be total extinction. Unlikely. Maybe 1% of the people would survive. That's 70 million people now. In Australia, in the oceans, uh, eating mollusks and, uh, and uh, fish and so forth. But 99% would go. And that has been true since 1952. Uh, Truman left Eisenhower about a thousand fission warheads in the arsenal. When Eisenhower left eight years later to Kennedy, there were 23,000 nuclear weapons in the arsenal, of which, as I said, a thousand would cause nuclear winter. We didn't know that. But 23,000 thermonuclear, that later got up to something like 37,000 in the U.S. arsenal, and about 40,000 in the Soviet arsenal. They had more tactical weapons. A total of 67,000 weapons in our two arsenals. We were the only one. Well, Britain and uh, France had small arsenals, eventually China. Okay, we still have more than 90%, uh, much more of 90% of the world's measures. Even though we've reduced them by 80% and more now, the ones we have on alert, subject to launch on warning, on fallible warning, come back to my original concern, of the kinds that have actually occurred, where people in the system did believe we were, we or the Russians believed, they were under attack. Wrongly, there wasn't an attack, but they believed there was from the signals they were getting. And had that been acted on, if it had persisted another minute or two, few minutes, we would not be here. We would simply not be here. And that, uh, one of the most recent of those alarms was in Russia in 1995, after the Cold War. It continues to be the case, 
it continues to be insane to be thinking of launch on warning, which we are doing still, prepared for, uh, against a nuclear state, but even, as I say, with the smoke caused by our own weapons. So that doesn't have to persist. And what I do want is for people to understand that when doubts were raised about nuclear winter in the late 80s by some serious scientists, but some of the same scientists who then doubted the carcinogenic properties of tobacco, literally, same, same people, and uh, who doubted uh, the uh, effects on the ozone layer in particular, and then in particular, doubted climate change. And uh, those people doubted this, and they said, nuclear winter, it's really just nuclear autumn. And as one of the scientists said, <laughs> autumn, that would do the job pretty well, too, actually, when it comes to harvest. But uh, autumn has this ring of pumpkins and uh, <laughs> autumn leaves and football games and whatnot. It doesn't sound that bad somehow. They were wrong. In the last 10 years, it's been clear to scientists that our own plans and our own 1,500 weapons on the road and the Russians uh, would in fact cause nuclear winter and kill nearly everybody. Both sides right now are making threats of this insane action. Putin has put Iskander M missiles in Kaliningrad, and I won't go into it, but how many people here know where Kaliningrad is? Can I, can I see? I see about 10, 12 hands. How many do not know where Kaliningrad is? Well, Kaliningrad is an enclave like West Berlin for us during the Cold War, which is part of Russia, but not connected with Russia, just as Berlin was not connected with West Germany. It was surrounded by, by Russian divisions. Well, Kaliningrad is surrounded by NATO, by Lithuania and Poland. It can't be defended by Russia with conventional arms. So he's putting dual capable missiles, capable of hitting Berlin, in Kaliningrad and possibly nuclear weapons. Now, if he fired those weapons, on the side, everybody dies. That's the threat of an insane action. Is it sane to be doing that? Well. He's imitating NATO for the last sure. uh, 50 years and more, 70 years, and exactly the same. And we've put the Baltics into NATO with our threat of first use of nuclear weapons. So what I'm trying to bring out to people is this system is not just wasteful or unnecessary or anachronistic, uh, which it is in all those cases. It's insane and immoral. If you know, morality is a word that's used by everybody rather mm -hmm. promiscuously and it's lost its, uh, its meaning largely. But you know, what Lincoln said was, and that's what caused secession, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. Well, I would say, if the position of this system is not wrong, wrong, then nothing is wrong. Morality has no, no real meaning. Daniel Ellsberg on stage at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. It was December 13, 2017, just weeks after the launch of his book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. He was interviewed by Dr. Gloria Duffy, 
president of the Commonwealth Club. This broadcast is part of a celebration of the work and life of Daniel Ellsberg. He recently disclosed that he has pancreatic cancer and has only three to six months to live. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>